since we've been attending Vintage Grace, um, for our family, it's been like less than a year. For some of you guys, it's been, you know, since the very beginning. And, you know, we're all wondering what's next. We've come to this crossroads, and we're, we're looking to Christ and his leading and, and what, what is next for Vintage Grace. You know, some of you might, might be feeling sad inside because you're not, you're not sure what the future holds. You know, some of you might be feeling really excited because you're like, you know, we have this opportunity to really dive deep uh, in a way we haven't done before in the community. Um, and as a church, we really all need to be reminded of, of, of Christ's lordship over the church, that we are his bride. Uh, his church is his bride. And we're going to look this morning uh, at Revelation 21. Uh, we're going to look at what it looks like uh, to be the bride of Christ. You know, last week, <clears throat> uh, we, we talked about the ascension. And you recall when the, the disciples, they were looking up to, to heaven as Christ ascended, uh, and they were just kind of aimlessly looking up, and they were reminded by the angels that Christ, the same way that he ascended, is coming back. And so for us, I want us to be reminded today that we look to the future because Christ is coming back. Uh, let's, let's read uh, Revelation 21. So I'm going to read, we're going to look at Revelation 21, 1 through 11, and then skip some verses, um, save some time, and 22 through 27. So John wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life, life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And we'll move down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, in the land. 
and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are reminded this morning that you are the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We are reminded this morning that you are making all things new. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us this morning as we struggle in this world. Lord, I pray that we would see you, we would see Christ. Lord, I also ask that uh, you would just use me this morning to bring your word uh, to everybody here, uh, that you would give people uh, hearts to hear, uh, and we thank you, Lord, that your word is true and it is reviving to the soul. In Christ's name, amen. So there, there are three things that, that I want to look at this morning. Uh, <clears throat> no more sin. Uh, it is finished and the holy city that is described here, and how these things apply to our lives and the church. You know, if we were to go back, as I just read uh, in verses 1 through 5, uh, we would see that, that John tells us that he sees a new heaven and a new earth, and that there is no more sea. So first, there are, there are two significant things uh, that, I want, that are happening here. Uh, the, the first is that we begin to see that... Uh, the Emmanuel with us. What John is describing here is Emmanuel. Remember, uh, as, as Christ was, was coming, as, uh, uh, as the angels appeared to the shepherds, uh, Emmanuel with us. That means that God is with us. And, and so here in John, or, or I'm sorry, in Revelation 21, we see this being completely fulfilled. No longer is God's dwelling place separate from us, uh, but he is with us. Now, it is true, yes, that, that Christ, that he, he indwells us now, all right? But that, that is in spirit only. But there is a day that we will see him face to face, that his dwelling place will be with us physically. The second thing that is mentioned here is that there is no more sea. Now, when you first read this, you might be like me and, and get kind of sad when you hear that there's no more sea because I love the ocean, I love swimming, I love surfing, fishing, all of that. But that's not, that's not what John is talking about here in, in Revelation. Uh, this is symbolic. Uh, and, and the sea sets forth the tone for the rest of the chapter. Uh, the, the sea is seen as a place of, of unknown, of a place of, of chaos, of darkness. Uh, and it, it's where Job describes, right, of the sea monsters that, that live in the sea. It's also mentioned in Revelation as well. So it's, it's a place of chaos, uh, but if God is with us, there is no more chaos. And if you were to go back uh, to the very beginning of Scripture in, Gen in, in Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1-2, it says, 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What we saw then was that uh, there was uh, no form or structure. There's a sense of, of unknown, of chaos, and God brings order to all of that. And, and likewise, here in Revelation, we see that uh, the passing away of all chaos, that there will be no more sea. Then in verse 2, we are given the imagery of the bridegroom of Christ as the city of Jerusalem. He says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There are no blemishes in his bride. She is perfect. A few weeks ago, uh, I got to officiate my first wedding ever. Uh, And it was really exciting. Uh, My nephew uh, got married. And, you know, as as the the officiator of the wedding, uh, one of the honors you have is is standing up front. And so uh, as you're standing up front, you get to see the bride uh, walking down the aisle. You know, and, and so I'm, I'm watching, I'm looking out, and, and she's marching down the aisle, and, you know, she's, she's beautiful. You know, her dress is, is pure white. There's, there's no blemishes on it. And, you know, it, I love, one of the things I love about a wedding service is that uh, as we celebrate a wedding service, that it depicts us in Christ, right? It, it, it shows, it represents our marriage, to the Lamb of God, and how we are presented spotless because we are the bridegroom of Christ. You know, one of the, the things I love to do is, is to go out in nature. Uh, I, I just love being out in the Lord's creation. You go out, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, it's quiet, uh, somewhat quiet, because you see the animals, you hear the birds chirping. And as I'm out in nature, uh, it, it, it's really strange. One of the things that always catches my attention as I'm out in the middle of nowhere is the litter. You know, I'm sitting there and just observing creation, and then something catches my eye, and I look, and it's a piece of plastic. And you start wondering, like, how in the world did this piece of plastic get here? You know, <clears throat> no matter how perfect something seems, like being out in nature, there, there's still corruption. There, there's still blemishes. Uh, you see this, this litter, and you know it's, it's not supposed to be there, but it is. But there is a time, you see, when God is going to dwell here with us, and we will be his people. There will be no more blemishes whatsoever. As we look at verse 3, it says, um, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. If if you remember um, back in in Matthew 6, on the Sermon of the Mount, uh, Christ teaches uh, the people around him how to pray. Uh, And as you look at the Lord's Prayer, 
Christ says, the first part of the prayer is, the first petition is, thy kingdom come. And so what we see here in Revelation is that happening. Thy kingdom come. So Jesus actually commanded us and taught us to pray. And the first thing that we look and pray for is the Lord's kingdom to come. We are to pray this prayer until the Lord returns. And here in Revelation, we are, we are given that promise of the return of Christ. And it, it's important for us to understand that Christ wants us. He wants us to pray for his kingdom to come. Now, now why? It seems maybe that's strange. Uh, because obviously God is in control of all things, right? Uh, God has ordered all things and ordained all things to happen. But yet, and he knows in, in that he is coming back, that his kingdom is coming. But yet he asks us, he wants us to pray for his kingdom. I believe it's partly because our hearts are weak. And we must be reminded continually that the Lord's kingdom will come. You know, we are, we, right now, currently, we are in the already and not yet stage. I don't know if you've heard this, this phrase before, right? Christ has conquered sin and death, uh, but he is yet to make all things new as he has promised. And so thus we are to pray, thy kingdom come. And as we pray for the Lord's kingdom come, we are praying, therefore, for his church, uh, as you would later look at in verse 22 of this chapter. So tomorrow, we're having a day of prayer and fasting, aren't we? And why are we having a day of prayer and fasting tomorrow? It's because we're praying for the Lord's kingdom to come as Christ has taught us. The vintage grace is part of the Lord's kingdom. And we want the Lord's kingdom to be seen throughout Oakleaf, don't we? Throughout Jacksonville. Throughout the Lord. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In verses 4 and 5, it says that, that God is making all things new, that there is no more sin or death. You know, we do battle with disease every day, don't we? Our friends and family are sick or dying. We have, we have physical ailments. And, and many times we have physical bad pain that, that we have to live with every day. You know, for some people, this, this never goes away. And they have to deal with this daily. You know, for some people, uh, they deal with the psychological pain of, of depression, anxiety, fear. These are realities that, that we deal with as people every day. You know, how exhausting it is if, if you just start going down the list of everything that we deal with every day. I remember um, back when I was 13, uh, I had gone on a short-term missions trip to Africa, and we were going from, by bus from Kenya to Uganda. And <clears throat> I can't remember if we were in Kenya or Uganda at the time, but we stopped to eat lunch. And we had these sack lunches, a, a sandwich and an apple, 
maybe some cookies, I don't remember exactly, but I remember our team leader telling us, hey, make sure you eat everything, all your food. Don't waste any of it, including the apple core. Uh, for some people, they were shocked by this. And so we're eating our lunches, and I remember this, these, as we're sitting there eating, these, these African children came up to us. And many of them, you know, they were in rags or shirtless. Um, their, their hair was orange or, or discolored from malnutrition. And they were hungry, and they were like, feed me, feed me, give me food. And it was the policy of, of the group that we were with that you don't do that. You don't give your food away. Um, and this one guy on the team, he ate his apple, and he threw the apple core on the ground. And, and as it was rolling in the dirt, just the apple core, this little child ran over and grabbed that apple core and climbed up into a tree so that the other children around wouldn't take it from him. And he proceeded to eat that apple core. I remember that, that day so vividly and how that is a, such a, a picture of the suffering in this world, that we live in a broken world. But then we're told here, imagine a world where there is no more pain, there is no more mourning or crying or suffering, a world of perfection. The only time that man has ever experienced this was in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned. But we are told here that this is going to be a reality for all of us. And this is a reality because God has promised that he will make it happen. And so does, does this sound too good to be true to you? Does it sound too good to be true? You know, God knows our hearts and he knows our unbeliefs, which is why he says in verse 5, that, that this is trustworthy and true. Write this down. Uh, because he wants us to know and he wants us to be reminded that, that what he is saying, the promise that he is giving here, is true. That there is going to be no more suffering, no more pain. God cannot lie. And so we can have full confidence that this promise of a new heavens and a new earth will happen. And we will be beautifully adorned for Christ. Let's look at the, the next section about it is finished. Look at verses 6 through 11. <clears throat> and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. At the beginning of verse 6, God says that it is done. There is a place in scripture that comes to my mind when we read this, and that is in John 19.30, when Christ hung on the cross, and he says, it is finished. What Christ was referring to was that he had fulfilled all of scripture in him, and that he was a sacrificial lamb, and the atonement for our sins. And likewise here, Christ tells us that he has made complete the full consummation of all of scripture, and brought all of his promises to fulfillment. He says, says that he's the Alpha, 
which uh, is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, that, that Christ was there at the very beginning. From eternity past, Christ was there, and he was there at the formation and creation of the world. He says that he is the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, there meaning that he brings to completion all that he has promised, as well as showing that there is no end to him. This is because he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And all this shows his, his eternality, his lordship, and complete sovereignty over everything. Next, God tells us that those who overcome, meaning those who are in Christ, will be given water to drink from the spring of the water of life in verse 6. And this shows us that everything we have ever needed will be met in Christ, that we will be completely satisfied in Christ. We will drink from Christ. You know, as, as, as man, we were created to need to drink water, right? But we are left thirsty. Uh, we always have to continue drinking water. God designed us this way. And we are told here that Christ gives us, what Christ gives us will be enough, that we will never be thirsty again. Our satisfaction will be found completely in Christ alone. You know, Jesus explained these things to the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And John, she didn't understand these things. Uh, she thought he was talking about physical water, but he was talking about himself. These things we desire now, but because our struggle, right? We desire uh, Christ, but because of our struggle with sin on this earth, it is not complete until Christ comes back. And so when Christ comes back, our desires will be completely satisfied in him because there will be no more sin. Christ will put an end to all suffering, to all sin. We are drinking right now of Christ. We are drinking of this water. But because there is still sin present, we still struggle. But there will be a day when there will be no more sin. There will be no more struggle. We will drink of this water and there will be no more sin in us. Do you long for this day? I long for this day. I do battle with sin every day. I do battle with the effects of sin, of a broken world, every day. I, just this past week, we learned of friends of ours, missionary friends of ours, who had to flee their country that they're missionaries in because they face being arrested and thrown in prison for preaching the truth. You know, it gets tiring, doesn't it? But imagine a time when you no longer have to do battle with the effects of sin. In verse 7, we are told that we will be God's son his daughters, because there will be no longer any sin in us. And as we continue reading on, we read then in verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is quite real. And this list serves as an example 
of all sin. And it serves as an example of all those who are not found in Christ. This is a warning to those who are not found in Christ that, that they will actually face physical, eternal punishment. Which is quite the opposite, isn't it, from verse 7? In verse 7, we, we are told that we will be his son. Those who are in Christ are God's, but those who are not in Christ will be thrown into the lake of fire. And we who are in Christ are covered by his blood. So although we are guilty of sin, Christ has taken that sin upon himself and freed us from the bondage of sin. And God, as we are told here, that he is calling people to himself from every tribe and nation. We don't know who those people are. We don't know who they are, are, who they are. But God does. And he asks us to be a part of that. That God, God has chosen to use us to bring this message to them. And, and that is why in verse 8 that it is such a great warning to all of us, isn't it? That first, we need to look to ourselves and say and see, are, are we in Christ? Right? Have we put our faith in Christ alone for our salvation? And it should also be a great drive and desire to see the lost saved. Because Christ has call, is calling people to himself from everywhere. Let's look now at the holy city. In verses 9 through 11, it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance was like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. We who are in Christ are described here as the bride. We who are in Christ are the church. And it is the church that is the bride of Christ. And Christ is described here as the lamb. The lamb who gave up himself for his bride. The sacrificial lamb. The bride here is the holy city. Which is, the, which is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here signifies all those who are in Christ. John is showing the, the, the city in verse 10. And then in verse 11, John goes on to describe the majestic radiance of the city because the glory of God shone from it. Let's not forget that it is God's glory. It is God's glory that is bestowed on us, and we reflect his glory. The city, Jerusalem, is so radiant, it is so radiant not because of who or what it is, but because of who God is, right? John goes on to describe in more detail about the city of Jerusalem. He shows how, if you continue reading in the verses we didn't read, he, he describes how perfectly the city has been made. And it will show again that, that there is order in the city. There is no darkness in it. And, and we are given a greater understanding of this picture. And if we move down now to verses 22 through 27, we are shown this, this climactic scene of the radiance of God and what it means to, for God to dwell with us. 
Look at verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty in the land. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see in the city that there is no temple because God is the temple and his presence is everywhere. Second, there is no sun or moon to give off light because God is light. He will be the everlasting light. If you were to turn back to Isaiah 60, 19 through 20, Isaiah describes this. Let me read for us. Isaiah 60, 19 and 20. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall, your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. This light that is being talked about here is a light for all the nations. And we are told that we are a part of this light, the radiance of Christ, just as we are the bride of Christ. We will enter the gates because they will never be shut, and there will be no sin in us, and nothing, nothing impure can enter these gates. This is a promise, Right? This is a promise. Only the ones whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the city. Only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will enter the city. This is an amazing scene that, that John describes to us here. And it is a reality, and we are part of it. You know, but some of us, all of us, wait for the return of Christ. We wait for him to make all things new. The, the reality is, is, is that we are here right now and that there is still suffering. There is still pain happening. And a question I have is, is, is what are we to do in the meantime as we wait? We don't know when he will return. But we have his promise that he will return. And so what are we to do? Well, we already talked about prayer, right? We are to pray for his kingdom to come. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that a church is to be active, right? And earlier in the book of Revelation, uh, there's a list of churches. And uh, these churches are described, some of them are described as being lukewarm. Right? They sat idly by. 
Some are described as being cold. Some of them are described as, as, being, um, as having forgot their first love, who is Christ. And then some of them are, are commended for, for their, their active service. God has called all of us, right, to love him and to follow him. And he has not called us to sit idly by. And so as we look to the hope we have in the future through Christ, we as a church, as an individual Christian, we must endure. And we can endure because of his grace in our lives. You know, as, as, we, look pat, look, as we look over uh, the past week, past month, the past year, you know, we've all experienced pain in some way. We've all struggled with sin and temptation. And we failed as Christians in so many ways, right? And, and if we look to the coming day, the coming week, month, year, we're, we're no doubt going to continue to fail. It, it's going to happen because of who we are. But we are given a promise here in Revelation 21. We are given a promise that that. Christ will put an end to all suffering, to all pain, to all sin. That we will be made perfect. Right? We are given a promise here that Christ, in showing that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Lamb and we are his bride. He is the light that will do away with all darkness. And he invites us to be his sons and daughters. How precious this is and, and what a joy to know that we are found in him and that if you are a Christian that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know about you, but, but this gives me great hope for the future as a believer in the Lamb. You know, no matter how difficult the road ahead may seem for us, we know that we are in Christ and that he is making all things new. This is a promise to us as a church, as an individual. Let's pray.